Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode number 10. The podcast is all about how to be an impactful and effective coach. We're going to be speaking with thought leaders and master coaches every couple of weeks. And as you can see, if you're watching the video, this is kind of um, a Christmassy intro. We've got the tree up here yesterday. And if you can see outside, it's, it's snowing heavily in Amsterdam. So I love that. I'm going to go outside and throw some snowballs at people after this. Uh, as I said, uh, we speak to thought leaders and master coaches every couple of weeks. And in today's session, we're talking with Ginny Whitelaw, who brings this beautiful balance of contemplation and practice. She's a Zen priest and also um, scientific rigor. She was a, a scientist at NASA for years. And we're going to explore what she calls the guts of leadership. Um, she calls it the horror. It's this region in our lower belly that we can develop access to. And, and as we do, we access the, the wisdom and the kind of uh, intuition that is stored there, which can, you know, which can infuse our coaching and, and our work as leaders too. So she'll tell us about how as we develop access to it, we become more ad agile, more resilient, and we develop what she calls an unshakable fearlessness, where we, we're unafraid to meet every experience that we encounter. She'll tell us how we can access it, and she'll guide us into it. She'll tell us how it impacts coaching and how she brings the wisdom from Ohara into the coaching. And she'll tell us how working in this way helps develop people in what she calls an extraordinary way, not just an ordinary way, but an extraordinary way. So as I said, um, Ginny is a Zen priest. She is the author of three books, including Move to Greatness, The Zen Leader, um, and she is a doctorate in biophysics, and she's been coaching and developing leaders for over 20 years. If you like this one, you can find more podcasts like it at coachesrising.com forward slash podcasts. Great to see you today, Ginny. How's things with you? Things are fine, and it's great to see you again too, Joel. Mm. We're going to talk today primarily about the, the guts of leadership. It's a topic that I'm really excited to explore with you. But I'd, I'd just love to start by asking you, um, you know, that the, the, you've brought uh, together two things in your life, um, your Zen practice and, and leadership and coaching. And I just would um, love to hear for you um, how that came to be. I know that's a big question, you know, that you could oh. probably talk about for you know, for, for the whole hour, but is there like maybe a, a pivotal moment for you that, that, you know, these things came together? Yeah, there, there, it's a great question. There is, um, the, uh, what, and it really plays into what we'll be talking about today with the guts of leadership. Um, I had been interested in energy, even as a kid, you know, I mean, I, w I wanted to be an astronaut and go into space and, um, studied physics and high energy physics and was so interested in energy. Um, and I did follow that dream to uh, take a job at NASA. I went into management, not into space. I ended up becoming the deputy manager for integrating the space station program. Um, and then along the way, I also started studying energy from an Eastern point of view through Aikido. And then my Aikido teacher told me, if you want to reach the peak of your game, you have to start training in Zen. And, and he had trained in Zen. And so it was sort of like, if you want to understand what I'm doing, if you want to really get my Aikido, you need this. And 
of course I wanted to reach the peak of my game. You know, of course I wanted to understand his Aikido. So I did start training in Zen. And those two streams, the love of energy, the training in Zen, the martial arts were coming together as I worked at NASA because I was having this management role by day in, in, the, in the agency, in the space agency. And by night I was running a dojo where I was teaching Aikido and Zen. And I could see a radical difference. By day, I was seeing how people were getting more, uh, I would sit in these meetings where people are getting more irritated and tense and bludgeoning one another with their opinions and not listening and, and calling each other names and how the condition of people could go downhill the more stressed out they got. And then the condition of what we were doing was going downhill as a result of that. Meanwhile, at the dojo, I'm watching people get more resilient, more stable, more compassionate, more able to literally roll with the punches. And I thought there has to be a way to bring these worlds together where the deep training of the dojo could really inform leadership. And it just started burning in me. And I had no idea how to do that initially. Um, but, you know, it's a funny thing when something starts burning in you, eventually it sorts out. And I started writing about body learning. I started uh, how you can learn through the physical body. I started teaching more about this. Um, I ended up um, leaving NASA with exactly two days of work lined up for the rest of my life because I wanted to start teaching this. And back in the 90s, it was a message, I would say, arguably ahead of its time. You know, it was hard to find people talking about embodied leadership back then or certainly Zen leadership or mindfulness, you know, people weren't talking about it then, but in a way the needs of the times have very much caught up with us. And the, the demands on leaders today, the disruptiveness, the, the need for a kind of unshakable resilience and agility, not brittle resilience, but that kind of dynamism that lets us handle what is happening, what's coming at us at, at light speed. Um, is more needed than ever. And so I feel like this combination of deep dojo training with leadership development has arrived to its time. Mm. Maybe you could say more about, I love just exploring the meanings of words, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and of course we could say uh, resilience and agility and assume we mean the same things about those, but I wonder if you could just say a little bit about what you mean by those words and why they're important. Yeah. You know, it's a, it, it, it's a great question um, because you could take them very deep. Um, one of the things we say about, about Zen is, um, you know, it's, Zen is a hard thing to define because it's not really a noun, you know, as soon as you try to pin it down as a thing, um, you get all full of confusion and it's not something to think about. It's a, it's a genuine experience that comes through your being, your body, but it's sometimes likened to, um, we say resolving differences or a, an image that is sometimes used as a ball on fast moving waters. Mm. And if you just picture that for a moment or picture that with me, a ball on fast moving waters, you can appreciate the kind of agility of a ball on fast moving waters. Mm. It's not arguing with the water. It's not afraid of the water. It's not worried about whether there's a drop off in the water. You know, it's not, it's just kind of moving and adjusting the conditions moment by moment. Can you picture that? Yeah. 
Yeah. And then you picture a human being on fast moving waters and you picture what we're doing in fast moving waters and you see how the fear comes out, how the self-protection, how the grasping and, and trying to keep ourselves safe and all that starts to happen. Um, so real agility, real resilience has to do with a grounded connectedness, a sense of dynamism and physical ability to move with conditions, but also a kind of connectedness that makes us unafraid of them, <laughs> you know, not feeling apart from them, like this is something I have to defend myself against, but a one withness. And that's where um, it really connects into our very topic of the guts of leadership, because we have a physical way to build that connectedness in the human body through, you could say guts, but we use the Japanese term, the hara, mm. H-A-R-A, that is the seat of this kind of resilience and agility that is not apart from, but a part of what is going on. Mm. Beautiful answer. Well, let's, let's kind of continue unpacking uh, what you just brought into the, you know, the conversation about the guts of leadership and the hara. We hear a lot about the, the gut brain today and I wonder if those are the same things for you. Like, what, what, what is the horror? Um, where is it? Uh, let's start practical. Because, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, when people hear these terms, maybe yeah. some of the listeners, they're like, is that just a kind of, um, you know, something you hear about from Japan and Zen? Is it, right. is it practical, real? And, um, yeah, is that the same thing as the gut brain? So let's start there and unpack it. And I would say yes and no, you know, because every frame of reference or every frame of learning has its own jargon, has its own way of thinking, way of looking, way of systematizing things. Um, there are connections between the gut brain and the hara, but if you dissected the human body, you wouldn't literally find the exact things we're talking about with hara. Um, the, why? Because there's an energetic or spiritual component to it. I'll just say energetic component. Spiritual can make us think of all kinds of of, um, you know, can get us, we get, again, to your point about thinking about words, when we talk spiritual, it can send us off in a lot of different directions. But when I'm talking energy, I'm talking about things that you won't physically see, you know, under a microscope, but they're part of the system quality of what's going on in the human body. And there's an energetic quality to the hara. Uh, to the guts that goes beyond just the nerve cells, the billion or so nerve cells that we associate with the gut brain, just as there is an energetic quality going on in the head and the heart and the other brains um, that we might associate with consciousness or a subjective experience of consciousness. But if you actually dissected the brain, you wouldn't find the thought of mother, you know, or you wouldn't find the the, the love of, of a friend, you know, in the heart. And yet you would find um, those qualities within the whole gestalt or form of the human being. So in the guts, we, uh, the Japanese uh, culture has recognized this as what they would call the psychophysical spiritual center of the human being. It, is, it has psychological qualities. It has physical qualities. It has energetic or spiritual qualities. Um, and our Western neuroscience is, in a sense, catching up with the fact that there's a lot going on down there. And yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of neuronal processing going on. There's a lot of, in fact, in the development of the nervous system, it's the part that develops earliest. 
it's it, we kind of develop from the base up. So there's a lot of very important stuff happening very early in our childhood development that has to do with the development of this center. And then you look at it from like a yogic perspective and the development of chakras. And again, these are the earliest chakras to develop in the human being, the root chakra, the second chakra. Um, when we're, you know, in the womb and up to two years old, that's when these centers are developing. Um, so they become a deeply rooted part of our uh, of our unconscious experience, and we have, in a sense, conscious access to them the more we start to integrate our whole being all the way down to that level. I'd love to talk about, you know, how we begin to connect this to leadership and coaching, and, and you are, you are um, setting that stage really well, but first I want to kind of stay with what the experience of the horror can be like. You know, you're starting to articulate how we can, through practice, you know, begin to kind of, um, I don't know, integrate its intelligence more and more. Uh, like, how does, that, how does that show up for people or for you? Yeah. I mean, and how does it show up for everyone who's listening to us right now? It's a great, uh, it's an actual experience. And I just I would invite you even right now, if you just let out a mm. sigh of relief, just a sigh of relief. <sighs> And instantly you feel something drops. Breath drops when the body is relaxed. And if you do it again, you could feel it drop even a little further. So in the human body, since we're, you know, physical systems in gravity, as the body relaxes, the breath drops down into the, into the lower abdomen. Now, if we get upset, uptight, hold our breath, we can raise up the energy as you hear in my voice. We can, we can bring it up, but that's not our most stable self. So if we sigh of relief, let it down, we start to feel a connectedness, a groundedness that instantly feels hmm, a little bit more like home. And now we can, we can take that to the next level by actually sending our breath down. And, and this is something that takes increasing practice. So maybe the first time we try it, we can only go so far or it doesn't feel so complete. But if we just play with it for a moment of, um, of sending the breath down into the lower abdomen. And to do this, I'm going to actually adjust my position as I sit here so I can really feel my feet on the earth. And I invite you... And those of you, unless you're driving or riding a bicycle, <laughs> listening to us to do the same. But if you actually are in a way where you can sit and just feel your feet on the earth, and especially your big toes, feel your big toes on the earth, and just invite your next exhale to drop straight down through your own lower abdomen and then through the big toes into the earth. And just slowly exhale down. If you keep, and you can just do that a couple more times, even as you listen to my voice, of slow, deep, long exhale right down through this hara center, through the big toes into the earth. And what's happening 
physically is we're, we're triggering the relaxing part of the nervous system. We're triggering the, the, the exhale is the relaxing part of the breath cycle. And we're stabilizing our whole condition. You notice after just three breaths, just three breaths taken that way, a change in the, in, in, I at least notice in myself, and I invite you to examine in yourself, a change in our condition of just, hmm, a little bit more grounded. Do you feel that as well, Joel? I do, for yeah. sure. I can, yeah. I feel more grounded, uh, more relaxed. Even my voice feels a bit deeper. Do you, yeah, it, it sounds deeper. Yeah, I, I can hear it. It's more resonant, you know, that, mm. whoa. Um, that, uh, and we can tell when we're, when the body relaxes, the voice does become more resonant, becomes um, bigger, you know. So that condition um, is the first, is a first simple way that you can start to practice that deep, hot breathing. Um, and then to just take it a step further into zazen, into Zen meditation, in a way, Zen meditation is a formal opportunity to do that with every breath. You know, I say formal because, you know, we don't move. We, you know, so we get rid of extraneous, you know, fidgeting and you know, rubbing our face and, you know, drinking our coffee. So we're sitting still, but every breath has that kind of intensity of how deep can this go right through my hara, right into the earth. And, and when, you, when you practice that way, you start to build an unconscious competence that develops this hara, that develops this, this area. Um, first, it has to be a conscious incompetence and a conscious competence, you know, the usual cycle of learning, because you'll find, I certainly found in my own body, um, I mean, I grew up with childhood asthma, so I had a zillion things in the way of letting the breath drop that deeply, you know, a lot of tension in the chest and just, uh, I mean, in the diaphragm area, so many parts that seem to choke off the breathing that I had to, and it, it frankly, for me, took years before the body could relax enough. I thought I was breathing right, but I found that it was really a journey of, of many years for me before mm. things really could stably drop into the hara. And still, even today, I learn more about breathing all the time. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it's a great journey, but it's, it's one of the ways that you literally, physically are developing um, the guts that can take you into a much richer life and much stronger leadership. Mm. So let, let me make sure I get this right. So the hara is, is like below my, my belly button a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, you know, um, a small thing. It, it can, you know, maybe it's not defined, but I can certainly, as you invite me to breathe into it, you know, feel those qualities you talked about come online, the groundedness, and the relaxation. Yeah, in fact, I'm, you know, the, the, there's different terms, both Chinese and Japanese, for this whole area. But if you place your hands on, the, on, the, the, uh, on your lower abdomen, just place your palms, and those of you listening as well, place your palms on the lower abdomen so that the, the, um, your, your thumbs are about at the navel area. And your, your fingers, your, the little fingers, or the, the, the edge or blade of the hand is almost at the crack, you know, where the torso becomes the legs. Um, that whole area is hara. Yeah. Um, it's like, and when you breathe deeply, you can feel that whole area expands. 
like a huge balloon, you know, if, if you really are belly breathing, you know, if you're really opening it up. I'd like to ask you about, because you say it can take years to develop this. And, and um, you know, I know that you're coaching executives or coaching people and um, uh, working with people on performance. And I wonder how you begin to bring this horror and its, its intelligence into the work you do with, with people, because some of them, you know, may not have done any of this practice or may be quite busy. And, and so, yeah, how does, how does the, like, is it something that you, you have to just practice for years? I can totally get how that makes you better, but yeah, how do you bring that in? Um, you know, you bring it in exactly as we did right here. You know, you start mm. with three simple exhales. You start with connect the big toe into the earth. I was just coaching with a leader yesterday who um, said she's been using that technique every time she goes into a meeting, every time she has to stand up and make a presentation. And she found just as you found Joel, it changes her voice. It makes her more commanding presence, you know, a more, um, she has her legs under her. You know, we have a lot of statements in our, in our language and, mm -hmm. and probably in all languages that somehow speak to this quality of when a leader um, has that kind of, um, has full command of their power. And that's, so the, the way that I help leaders get there quickly is first to experience this area and then to start to breathe into it and then to make it a habit to say, find certain triggers in their day that right before you go into a meeting or right before you give a presentation or right before you start a coaching conversation, just check in with yourself. I mean, in fact, in a lot of um, coaching practices that you've brought to um, the coaches rising will we'll talk will speak to this how a coach can condition or prepare themselves for a coaching conversation this can be a very part of that preparation mm. uh, adjust your posture so your breath can sink breathe deeply into your hara let your and and open up a listening space with you and the other person this quality instantly starts establishing a connection even as, as you and I can feel this now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. I was about to ask you about the, the, what it makes possible for you as a coach, you know, that does it inform your coaching too? You know, I, I get that it creates this relaxation and maybe gravitas, but maybe does it also inform the coaching conversation of where you go? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the uh, there there are at least six things that this Hara development does for leaders and for coaches, and one of them absolutely is this sense of connectedness that informs intuition. We say in Zen, it's a gateway to samadhi. What I mean by that, samadhi is a condition that it's a it's a Sanskrit term, so it sounds kind of Eastern and exotic, but it's an everyday human experience of when we, in a sense, forget the boundary of a separate self and we just are one with a situation. It, it happens in everyday experience, you know, when people are watching a, um, a sports game and suddenly they're completely engrossed in <laughs> following the ball or, you know, something, and they, and they forget themselves as a separate human being, you know, in their isolated skin. They are just there, you know. Or at the end of a wonderful musical performance, you can always catch this moment right, right as the orchestra stops playing 
And right before the audience starts applauding, there's a very pregnant pause where everyone's just, wow, what just happened? That's a moment of samadhi, a group mm -hmm. samadhi. Um, so this samadhi experience is in the one sense common, in another sense, we rarely draw attention to it, so it goes by unnoticed, but it's intentionally cultivated in meditation. Uh, in not just Zen meditation, but in, in meditation generally. The hara in Zazen is its gateway. So as you breathe deeply into the hara, it's expanding sensitivity, and in a sense, opening up a visceral connectivity. It's almost like um, an antenna. I mean, that's how I experience it in coaching. It's like an antenna opens up where you start to sense things that are not just rational. It's not like what you said, it's what you didn't say. It's, it's, it was a subtle gesture you made. It's a, a feeling you get. And then you test it out with the person with a gentle question. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a sense of, of, of some doubt in what you just said. Is there doubt? And whoa, yeah, there was a lot of doubt. So you, it, it, when you can start to operate at that level of intuition, coaching goes to a completely different level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just really um, captivated by what you're sharing here about this um, and how it becomes an extra dimension, dimension to your coaching to take the performance to a whole different level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not something we would teach in a beginner's coaching course, maybe, mm. but once somebody has the basics down, you know, um, and they want to deepen into being that kind of, um, that, that, you know, a, a kind of coach who um, can really help people develop in an extraordinary way, then, mm. uh, then this kind of intuition is invaluable. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, because I, you know, I hear a lot these days about the gut and how that can, inf how important that is in informing decision, the decision making process. That yes, there's this rational part of us which is important, but that without this um, deeper kind of sensing, um, you know, and, and including our emotions, that that so much is missing. You know, and in fact, actually, that is really, that stuff's the stuff that can often help you make the decision. That's right. And I, I you know, I want to pull in your point about including emotion, because, you know, if we, if we had to think about um, those relational qualities or emotion in the physical body, we would tend to think about the heart or the heart center or something like that. Or, 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 or if we're chemically oriented, we'd think about uh, the chemicals that mediate emotion, you know, the, um, or if we brain oriented, we think about the amygdala or the midbrain areas that light up under emotion. <clears throat> the point being that emotion is more powerful than rationality. We know that, you know, it, it, people who've studied decision making and why people do what they do have pointed out for years that people don't make decisions for this or that rational reason. They make a decision emotionally and then backfill it with this or that reason. You know, they justify it or explain it to other people. But our, but our emotions are really pivotal in our decision-making process. Um, emotions are, are key in stories. They're key in how we learn. They're key in how we remember. So emotion is hugely important. Um, and hara can stabilize emotion. 
because in a way it's underneath it. You know, it, it's the gut is under the heart. You know, it's very simple. The and and you can't stable you can't stabilize emotion by just throwing more thought at it. Oh, I shouldn't feel that way. You know, oh, I have to get less anxious. Oh, I I quit worrying about it. Oh, I have to quit self-flagellating. You know, or whatever it is. But you drop into hara. You drop into center. And you stabilize, not by thinking about it, but by grounding it in something that has root. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like you're trying to pretend the emotion isn't there. And this is, to me, so important in coaching and leadership. What does it afford? The hardest parts in leadership, you know, when you look at what leaders are truly lousy at, often relates to difficult conversations, um, handling conflict. Um, if you look at, you know, or, or not being liked or, you know, things that involve negative emotions. But when you can face into negative emotions and not run away, when you can be present for them because you've got the stability, the, to use your word, gravitas, to simply be present with them, then you lose your fear. You don't, you don't hide from the difficult conversation. You don't back away from the tough coaching question. You can just be there with the person. You don't have to solve it. You don't have to fix it. They can break down in tears and you can just be present with them. Um, and it, to me, is a, it's a huge gift that we can offer to other people. It also opens up our own resourcefulness to be present in the, in the most stormy situations of human life. It's funny, I can, as you speak about this capacity to be with our experience in this way, it's like my whole body lights up and I feel, yes. I feel how much I want that and how um, uh, valuable that capacity to, to not kind of be buffeted around or to contract away or to, you know, to be um, basically averse to, to these experiences in life can bring on a certain level of fearlessness, which is not like... Um, not a brittle fearlessness of like, you know, I'm, I don't care. I'm not afraid. I'm just going to do this, but it's a humble kind of open fearlessness where it's like, I'm willing to, I'm willing to meet this experience. Exactly. That's a beautifully put Joel. I'm willing to meet this experience. And why am I willing to meet it? Because I'm not apart from it. Mm. Connected, you know, I'm connected mm. to it. Um, so really well put. How would you, how would you invite a coach, a person you're working with, a leader, to into that that experience? I know in a way it's practice over time, but is that something that you explicitly do, or is it more just happening as you get them familiar with their bodies and their horror? Well, you know, as you pointed out earlier, everyone has a different. Um, you know, a different level or level of interest in which they want to engage something. Some want a, a trip, a, a tip or a trick or something they can apply like three deep exhales and, and send your big toes into the earth. And other people want to dive in a little further and say, hey, I want to get really good at this. And for people who want to get really good at this, I, I always encourage them to come to a Zen leader program at the, you know, we, we offer open enrollment programs at the Institute for Zen Leadership. And I don't say that as some kind of advertisement, but that is where we're able to put people into a more of an immersion experience where over a course of several days, 
they keep coming back to this Zazen training, this deep heart of breathing, and then see a leadership or a coaching application of it, and then go back into the experience, apply it. So in that back and forth, they get, they get that feeling much more in their body. And what they learn, um, because so many people have described it as a transformational experience, it transforms their relationship to the challenges of life. You know, not, it can't, you know, we can't change everything out there and make it just like Joel wants it or just like Ginny wants it, but we can change how Joel and Ginny relate to it. Are we relating to it like a ball on fast moving waters or are we relating to it like a flailing human being trying to protect herself or himself? And when we change ourselves through this kind of, you know, repeated immersion, and, and that, you know, this is a three or four day experience. We're not talking three or four decades, you know, three or four days. Then, um, you know, people come away, wow, I have something. And then they go back to their busy lives and they watch it taper off because that's what happens. You know, we, we have an aha experience. And then, you know, as, as, um, as our good friend Doug Silsby often teaches, you know, um, once you have the aha, that's when the real work starts because now you have to really integrate it into your whole body. Well, everyday life isn't going to necessarily do that. So it's going to start tapering it off, but something remains, the memory remains. Maybe I come back for another experience or maybe there's some practice I've started. And what a lot of people find they start is they'll start morning meditation, 20 minutes. They'll start sitting in the morning and doing this deep breathing 20 minutes every day. That's really like that next level at which people want to engage it. If people start doing that, it will change their life. I was told that myself by a great Zen teacher when I was in graduate school. And I thought, I'm a scientist, you know, I'm going to run this experiment. <laughs> and I started sitting. But it, I've never known anyone for whom it's not true. Yeah. Now, if you sit like a couch potato, it's not going to change your life. But if you sit with the, this sincerity that you and I were just experiencing of breathing deeply into our center, and you do that for 20 minutes on a daily basis, the entire body, human body system is going to start shifting. So, I mean, I think is, this is one of the most fundamental, you know, everybody I speak to who is, um, you know, a thought leader in coaching talks about the fundamental of practice, you know, and yeah. some kind of practice that you're describing here. Um, and, and, and I know that in my own life, it's like how radically powerful it is in, in changing my, my kind of fundamental moment to moment experience. And it's interesting. I, I wonder if, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this, because you said earlier that in the 90s, you know, people weren't really, maybe you were, you were a bit ahead of your time. Um, and I wonder now if there's, there, like it seems to be that people are taking to these practice practices faster in some way um, um you know that that like that once they start doing them things open up a little bit faster right. that's right i mean it could be you could of course you can make a case for the opposite we're getting more distracted and and so on but somehow i, I seem to see a lot of people you know getting real traction and i yeah. wondered what you think I, you see both things happening, as you said. You know, it's it's like, in a way, consciousness. Uh, you know, as Ken Wilber talks about the different levels and states of consciousness, is evolving faster than at any point in human history. And on the other hand, you get the backlash to consciousness of greater polarization and 
and greater and populist movements and retrenchment and nationalism. You know, so you're seeing both. You see people evolving in their practices and you see huge amounts of distraction, reduction in attention span, especially among children. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it, people who are growing up facing a screen have an attention span of a gnat. You know, of a, they, it's a few seconds before they're off to another thing. And that's, you know, being studied in research. I don't know what kind of world is going to be possible for people like that. Um, when I think about my own life, if I could only attend to something for a few seconds, there's so many things I would never have been able to do. But that's what's happening. So both, you know, we're, both things are, are going on. Um, but without a doubt, the needs of the time are pulling out this need to as you put it, find a way to not be so buffeted by all these winds of change and disruption and, you know, constant media and 24-7 um, news cycles and whatever. You know, it's how to handle all of this in a way where I still feel whole. So, yes, people are ch moving more toward um, these integral practices or integrative practices that help us feel more whole. Um, I find it interesting, you know, that the, the, that, uh, the mindfulness movement has grown so popular and it's, it's, and in a way it has, it's a, it's a wave that has lifted the total interest in meditation. So I'm very happy to see it. And yet what, what troubles me about it or what, what I think, where I think it can sell the human being short is a lot of people think of it as something that stops at the neck, that it's another way of living in our head. Oh, I now pay attention to my thoughts, you know, rather than, than um, the Sanskrit term that Buddha was getting at when it was mindfulness in the body. And we just kind of dropped off that whole last part of it and just stuck with the mindfulness component. Because in a way we, you know, it's natural in human development that we kind of split mind from body at some stage in our development. But it's also natural that we reintegrate it at another stage. And it's one reason I appreciate your work so much in really bringing the embodied elements into coaching and into, you know, holistic practices, because staying in our minds or in our thoughts alone will never be enough. It will not help us handle this, these buffeting winds. We are going to have to dig down and, um, first be able to experience the human condition of this time emotionally. And we'll have to also ground that deeper in Hara to be able to not run away from it, but be totally present in it. And then you can say, bring it on in a very humble way, bring it on. Um, the, but, but not if you're trying to handle it with just, you know, uh, anxious uh, here and there 50 times a second thought. That will never that will never feel good in the human body. It's interesting for me because I speak to a lot of coaches, uh, you know, and so many of them now are saying what you just said. You know, it seems to be there's a real theme, and maybe that they've uh, maybe that's well, basically they're all advocating for this shift that we, you know, we have to do these practices that open up access to a greater spectrum of who we are so that we identify not just as this kind of thinking mind and we're kind of, you know, because if that's all we have, then, then there's very little room for um, growth or integration or anything to take place, you know? So creating this space allows us to be with all this and the emotionality 
in a more kind of skillful manner. And I just, yeah. I'm just struck by how, again, it's a bit like the conversation we're having. It seems to be really um, a message of our times. I think it is. You know, as I said, there's a certain stage in, in development where we have to reintegrate to go further. Um, it, you know, Ken Wilber would call it the integrative stage, you know, that when we kind of shift from um, a thinking head uh, that now can look at things pluralistically to being more integrated in our whole being. Um, and that integration um, is a stage of development that I think more coaches are reaching, more leaders are reaching. Um, it's, it's coming out in a more, uh, it, it's not, a, a, it's not a, um, a majority by any means, but I think we are approaching a critical mass of people who are starting to operate with either a hunger for that stage of development or they're centered at that stage of development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking of this sort of felt sense of experience, which seems to become a more um, go-to kind of uh, place to, to, to know from, to know. It's like a different kind of knowing. It's like, yes. and it's not just sensation in the body I'm talking about. It's like this whole kind of, um, yeah, it includes that emotions, it includes thinking, but it's like what arises out of that. And, and that's this kind of felt sense of experience which begins to guide. Yes, absolutely. It's what I called earlier intuition. Yeah. Um, it's that felt sense of what I loved your words emerges from when the body operates as an antenna for the universe, right? <laughs> what yeah. emerges in that. And that's what's possible for the human being. That's what's mm-hmm. possible for the human being is for your own human body, your very human body to operate like an antenna for the universe. Uh, the human being can be connected to the whole universe. We say the true human body is the entire universe. That's not our egotistical perspective, but that is what's possible for the human being. And my vision for leaders, my my aspiration in coaching is I see that in people. I see that in you. I see that in the people in front of me. I see who you are. And because I can see that, I want to keep drawing people toward it. Like Like you're fishing, you know, like you're reeling them in toward their bigger self. That's my aspiration in coaching. And, and maybe they only can drop away one delusion or one bit of self-tension or one, um, you know, one bad habit. You know, that's fine. They keep moving closer to who they are. So um, I like to hold the vision of who they are and let them keep moving closer to it. Um, one, you know, one uh, drop away of tension at a time. <laughs> so the... Uh, and that's really my vision with the Institute, you know, for Zen leadership, that when, you know, we say Zen resolves duality, um, that sounds like some kind of philosophy, but it's not. You know, I go back to the ball on fast moving waters. When a leader can operate with as much agility and operate a whole system, understanding that, that he or she is, is acting on on self in the largest sense. You know, when I talk to you, I'm talking to myself. When I'm leading this organization, I'm leading myself. I don't mean I'm leading my egotistical self, but I'm leading for the whole picture. When I make decisions out of that kind of bigness, they're decisions that serve the whole picture, not just what serves my own individual self in the skin needs. And it's that kind of leadership that I deeply, deeply feel we need today, you know, and that's why to go back to your point about the evolution of consciousness, Mm. that's what I want to develop. I firmly believe that 
because of the disruptiveness of this time, especially, I mean, not only the everyday news cycle that we can get, you know, fearful about, but the, um, the, 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 the march of technology that is going to radically change what it is to be human within two generations. Um, you know, we used to talk about access to education as a huge differentiator among whether people could be successful in life. But it's soon going to be access to technology, you know, not just having a, a cell phone, but having the implant that gives you an IQ of 300 or whatever, you know, having the ability to, to outperform people who have no access to that at a whole different level. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to lay out some dystopic view of the future, but I'm saying those technologies are upon us. The next two generations of leaders will decide how we use them. And if leaders can make decisions for the whole picture, we will use them much more wisely than, than we have used um, you know, the, the, um, the, the instruments of technology up to this point. As we move towards like the end of our conversation, I just, I'd love to ask you, like, if there was one thing you would um, say to coaches you know, who are starting out, uh, what would that be? You know, and it's a bit of a provocative question because, you know, um, what would, is there one thing, you know, probably there's not one thing, but if there was like one rallying call you would make to them or one piece of wisdom that you would share, I wonder what that might be. You know, I, it, lifelong learning, um, that I feel as coaches, we have to model the journey for people um, and that we ourselves can never stop challenging ourselves to, to unfold it all, you know, be our full potential. That we, any place we're stuck, we're not going to help other people get past those places. <laughs> so, so we better be willing to look at those stuck points in ourselves, um, and, uh, and never stopping, you know, never saying, Oh, I'm developed enough, you know, I'm good enough. But being intensely curious about what's possible for the human being. I think if we have that intense curiosity, we'll keep seeing more in the people who are with us. You know, we'll be able to uh, see more possibility in them. So we can never open up more for others than we will open up for ourselves. So my advice to any coach would be keep opening up yourself. It's a beautiful place, I think, to, to bring our conversation to a close. But I'd actually love to invite you to, to say, like, where can we find out more about you and the work you're doing? Thank you, Joel. That's, it's kind. The, uh, you've heard me mention the Institute for Zen Leadership, and we, the website is institutezenleadership.org. Um, uh, that, so our, our programs are described there. We've got programs planned in the United States, in the UK. We have one coming up in the UK, uh, April 5th through 8th, um, so not far from you, <laughs> and, uh, and then in Wisconsin in April 19th to 22nd, so uh, we've got- That's that. 2018, of that's course. That's right, yeah. 2018, and, and yeah. that's, so that's the next opportunity. Um, so, you know, I think um, um, the, uh, the Zen Leader book is also an entry point for a lot of people. That was a book I wrote a few years ago, but it really lays out some of these steps to, to how you keep opening up yourself progressively to a place where you can lead for the whole picture. And the Zen Leader book um, is available 
everywhere in several languages and things like that. So I, I, that would be that would be a, a closer in entry point for people. So thank you for that, Joel. Yeah, sure, sure, great. I really enjoyed um, our conversation today. I can still feel myself um, in touch with my Hara as well. Good. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time to guide us into that. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate very much your questions, your, your work in general, and, and this, has been, uh, this has been good fun. So thank you. Hi, it's Joel here again. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can find more of these. We're going to be speaking to um, thought leaders and masters in the field of coaching. Uh, you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash podcast. We'll be updating that every couple of weeks with a new dialogue. And if you are inspired, again, I'd love to get the word out to other coaches about this. You can, on those individual podcast pages on coachesrising.com forward slash podcast, you'll find these little share bars on the right-hand side. If you click on that, then you can th share it through social media. Of course, you can just email people the link to it, tell them about it. That will be very cool indeed. So I wish you well, and I will see you again next time.